Blog Talk Radio. The Purple Angel. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. Um, I basically started Alzheimer's Speaks because my mom had was dealing with dementia for 30 years. She just recently passed away. So more than half of my life I was searching for answers. And I just didn't find a lot that would help me learn how to live with this disease gracefully and um, give me ideas you know, for for our family um, and to help my mom uh, live the best life possible. And so that's really why I created Alzheimer's Speaks. We truly are an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe really strongly that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and having everyday conversations <clears throat> about life with dementia, we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and to help people live good purpose-filled lives with the disease. Together, I firmly believe that we can help everyone understand and have better opportunities and be able to make better choices by sharing knowledge. And in doing this, we're also going to remove the myths and the stigma that creates so much fear and so much isolation for people truly in need. At our core, collaboration, we believe, is the key. And I have to thank our audience over and over and over again because you have made such a big, brilliant impact by just taking the time to like us, to share with others the the information that we have um, with your groups on Facebook, on LinkedIn, your Google groups, um, emailing it to your colleagues. This makes a huge impact. And through all of those little second clicks that you've done, um, you've made Alzheimer's Speaks the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's on um you know, in the world, according to Share Care and Dr. Oz. And we couldn't have done that without you. So, again, I thank you. And I know from being in the trenches with this disease as long as I have the importance of getting knowledge to people in need. They might not be ready to grab it yet, but the more information we can have accessible, the more okay it's going to be for those who need the information, um, one, to be able to find it, and two, to feel comfortable tapping into it. So kudos to all of you for, for making such a big difference in that area. 
Um, I hope you'll also go check out alzheimerspeaks.com. There you'll see all of our different platforms from Dementia Chats, which is a webinar that we do twice a month where I interview people who have dementia. They are our experts um, and our panel during these discussions. And the public uh, can come and join the conversation, and it's all free of charge. We also have a pretty active blog that, again, the focus is really how do you live with the disease. So lots of tips um, and and options um, connecting you to services that I know I I couldn't find. And again, uh, something that my heart is uh, deeply attached to, helping people learn how to live well with this disease. I'd like to um, encourage everybody to take part in the show today. We're going to have a very, um, I think, a fun and interesting show and a great topic on toxic foods this first hour in disease. And so we'd love for you to call in, and that number is 714 Three six four four seven five seven. Again, that's seven one four three six four four seven five seven, and we'll pull your um, your comments in. We can pull you in live to the show, or you can you know utilize the chat box as well. Before I introduce our first guest, I just have to give a shout out to uh, some of my partners, the Purple Angel, you know, with Norms uh, McNamara and Jane. Uh, I, I just can't say enough wonderful things. If you're not involved with the Purple Angel Project, I highly encourage you to um, get in contact with me. You can go to alzheimerspeaks.com, go to our About page, and you'll find a tab that says the Purple Angel. Everybody is able to utilize this symbol to create awareness around the world. We want the Purple Angel to be as well-known as the Pink Ribbon, and there's absolutely, absolutely no reason it can't be. Um, I also want to give a shout-out to Alzheimer's Disease International, they are the association of all the Alzheimer's associations around the world. So no matter where you're listening from, you will be able to get hooked up with a association closest to you. If you need a support group, if you want to get involved with the walks, um, there's many opportunities. Check out Alzheimer's Disease International. In fact, we're going to be having Mark Wartman on the show um, later on <clears throat> this month. And he's going to be sharing information, sharing information with us regarding um, new uh, new information on prevention. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And I want to give a big shout out to uh, one of our new partners, Hellstar Home Health. I am so thrilled to be associated with the with this team. I was out at our state fair. Um, they did for the first time, and we have a massive state fair here in Minnesota, but for the first time ever there were memory screenings done. And believe it or not, because we were a little shocked with this, they were averaging two to 300 people a day coming up and getting a memory screen. Now that is in addition to all of the conversations that were had and the information that was given out the stories people were telling. It was just a fantastic time. So kudos to Health Star 
uh, home care. The Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, again, a great tie-in with our show today about food. Um, they really take a holistic approach in terms of food and exercise and meditation. And then for those of you struggling with specific types of dementia, because there are many different forms, Alzheimer's being the most common, remember there is a uh, an association for Lewy body. There's also one for frontal temporal lobe. Um, both have very different symptoms, and so I think it would be great to find support in those if you're the person diagnosed or if you are uh, a person caring for someone. And don't forget about the National Aphasia Association as well. They um, help people with their speech because there can be a lot of, of problems there. So they've got tics, tips and tricks. Um, regarding uh, speech. And then if you're looking for more social uh, support, Music First with Choral Health, they write prescriptions for music. Music so powerful and engages us in so many different ways. Um, so check Music First with Choral Health. That's C-O-R-O Health. Puzzle Me. A puzzle with me with uh, Jane Snyder, again, oversized adult puzzles uh, with fewer pieces, easier for people with dementia to work with. And then Jiminy Wicket um, with James Creasy is a wonderful way to engage people through the game of croquet, and it's an absolutely fantastic route to be able to go for intergenerational um, get-togethers and education. So... <clears throat> Um, let me go ahead and introduce our first guest here today because, again, I'm very excited about the show that, we, uh, that we're going to have today. Um, you know, our topic this first half hour is going to be about toxic foods and, and modern disease. And things have changed a lot, and we have a wonderful expert with us, Stephanie Sneffis. I can't say, now I can't say the name. I just pronounced it earlier. Stephanie Sneffith. Um, well, Stephanie, I'm just, I'm creaming your name, so you're going to have to, when I pull you into the show, you're going to have to um, go ahead and pronounce your name for me. I'm so embarrassed on that one. She, anyway, she is the senior researcher um, and scientist at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. She has her um, bachelor's degree from MIT in biology with a minor in food and nutrition and a PhD in electrical engineering and computer science, also from MIT. She's the author of more than 150 peer-reviewed journal and conference proceeding papers, um, mostly to speech and natural language processing by computers. But over the last several years, she's really focused on the application of computer science to analyze the biology research literature. And this effort has resulted in several peer review papers published with the uh, international collaborators. She uh, has focused um, a focused understanding on the effects of environmental toxins such as aluminum and glyphosate. Um, and she's she's just loaded with tons of great information. So we're going to talk about 
diet. We're going to talk about environmental toxins, insufficient light exposure um, to skin and eyes, um, all different types of things today. And um, she's going to touch on, you know, we're going to focus primarily on Alzheimer's disease, which is so closely tied to autism as well. But, you know, it affects heart disease and diabetes and arthritis as well. So I think this is going to be a very, very interesting topic. So welcome, Stephanie. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Can you please pronounce your name? I don't know why I can't say it. Is it Snefa? I, I can't say I it again. on the first syllable. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it was like, what is my problem here? But <laughs> thank you, Snefa. <laughs> Oh, oh well, it's just one of those days. I guess it's uh it's Tuesday, but it feels like Monday to me and I'm I'm acting like it, I guess. <laughs> That's true. Holiday well, messed you up. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Well, let's let's get started and and kind of focus first on the the GMOs. Can you tell people first of all what is a GMO and what are some of the key factors? Um, with GMOs, because not everybody even knows what GMO stands for. Right. It is actually difficult to understand because it's hard to see the difference between a GMO and the regular kind of genetic engineering that's been done for thousands of years of sort of selecting the better plant and using that next year. But GMO is different because they they use a kind of a shotgun method that's extremely not natural to shoehorn in a foreign gene that comes from a completely different species. So they'll put a bacterial gene into a plant, into the plant's DNA, and then that bacterial gene does something really interesting that has a major effect on that plant. And the biggest sellers among those kinds of manipulations they've done are two, and both of them involve pesticides. Uh, The first one is the Bt corn, which has been really successful in uh, controlling a pest problem with the um, corn, with a worm that infects the corn. And so the Bt corn produces Bt toxin. This is a bacterial gene that produces a toxin called Bt toxin that kills the, it kills the um, worm that eats the corn by blowing up its stomach. So, you know, to say that, okay, it blows up the stomach of a worm, but it doesn't do anything to humans is a stretch, I think. You know, I mean, they want us to believe that's the case, but, you know, we've been having a lot of digest- digestive problems recently and perhaps it's in part because we're eating this pesticide whenever we eat an ear of corn every cell in that corn has the capability to produce that pesticide so i think that's really scary the one that i find even scarier is the roundup ready gene and that is incredibly that's been you know incorporated into many core crops um, that go into the processed food industry and you can think of the main foods that are cheap and you know um Easy to eat. I mean, easy to buy and easy to eat in terms of like potato chips and, and you know rice products. So not rice. I'm sorry. Rice is not GMO Roundup ready, at least not yet. But corn and um, soy. So soy, of course, goes into soy protein, which goes into all kinds of things. So soy protein bars and the soy drinks and all this kind of you know they're they're sort of touting this high protein nutrition bar, you know, that contains the soy protein, for example, and soybean oil, which has completely taken over the oil. I mean, we eat a tremendous amount of soybean oil today, and we didn't, you know, 20 years ago. So this is a cheap way to get um, oil for cooking, you know, which is um, so convenient, and so people tend to gravitate towards buying that. Well, the soy and the corn are both, you know, 80 or 90% of the crop that's grown in the U.S. is called uh, Roundup Ready, meaning that when it's sprayed with this toxic chemical Roundup, 
uh, it doesn't it doesn't die. And um, and Roundup actually kills all plants, so it's it's pretty remarkable that these plants can actually live when they're exposed to Roundup. But the thing is, they don't actually necessarily metabolize Roundup, so it ends up in on your dinner plate. And the government is not doing uh, nearly enough to to monitor, you know, to see if in fact there is glyphosate in the food. And so this is sort of coming out in studies that are being done by independent researchers that in fact when you have the GMO Roundup Ready soy as compared even to the conventional soy where Roundup was used to kill the weeds, you have a lot more residue of this glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, in the food product than you do when you don't have the GMO gene. So that's the huge issue, I think. I think actually the perhaps the biggest issue with GMOs is that they uh, allow you to pour, to spray these toxic chemicals on the plant and they don't die. And Lately, what's been happening is they've been having a lot of issues with GMO Roundup-ready weeds. So these weeds are kind of, because they're exposed to this Roundup um, on these Roundup-ready crops, uh, they become resistant to the Roundup themselves, and then they can just freely grow in the context of the Roundup, and then they have to use more and more of it to try to kill them. And so the amount of Roundup being used on the crops has been going up very consistently over the past 15 years, exactly in step with the increased use of the GMO uh, seed. So um, it's linked to the increased exposure, and the increased exposure is linked to a lot of different modern diseases that are also going up exactly in step. And in fact, two of those diseases are autism and dementia. And you can look at plots of um, autism in the classroom and dementia um, in the medical records in the U.S. over time. And if you t- take a plot for the past 15, 20 years, and you also look at a plot of the amount of glyphosate that was used on corn and soy, which is all of this is available on the web uh, from the U.S. government, you find a perfect match. I mean, both of those have like a 0.99 correlation coefficient. 1.0 is the highest it can be. So I find that really shocking. And, and there's been a real buzz out, you know, oh, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, which is their answer to this. You know, they want to dismiss it because of the fact that it might not be car. Uh, causation. But in general, if you see correlation, you know, when they see correlation between high cholesterol and heart disease, they think it means causation. And they're all all over statins because of that. And it's much, much weaker correlation than the correlation between glyphosate and dementia or the correlation between glyphosate and autism. So, you know, when you see that kind of correlation, the first thing you want to do is to find out if causation might be a plausible explanation doesn't make sense not to look for causation in a situation like that. So this is what I did, and of course I found it. I mean, I found a lot of reasons why it would make sense that this this glyphosate would cause both autism and Alzheimer's, as well as many other modern diseases that we're currently suffering from. Well, you know, it's interesting because as you're talking, you know, Labor Day weekend, of course, what was I eating Corn on the cob, and we we were all saying. You know, I know. Corn, I love how, corn on the cob, and I used to I used to get it, and now I don't eat it anymore, unless I know it's organic, yeah. which it never is, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's and and I'm thinking too. I I've just been thinking about you know in my gardens we have these like power weeds now that won't go away, and they're growing so big, and it seems like we need um, you know bigger um and and more chemicals you know to to stay on top of them yeah i I was just gonna say um we can hear you breathing a little bit so i don't know if you've got a mic piece if you can pull it back or if you're the way you're holding your phone so i can bring my um, phone down uh, lower uh down lower yes is better okay yep that's better yeah 
so not a problem. Okay. We need you to breathe, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I tend to hold the phone too high. I will keep it low. Thank you for saying that. Not a problem. But um, could that have something to do with all? I mean, all my friends are complaining about these power weeds that we never, ever had before. That's interesting. So my suspicion is that as the soil gets damaged, the weeds um, uh, are more... Uh, grow more, you know, and I can't prove that. I don't have a scientific explanation for that. But they're certainly finding, you know, when you look at the crops, they're finding huge, huge problems this year with uh, weeds showing up uh, in the soy and in the corn, and they're really struggling. That's why they're, now they're trying to get this new GMO, not Roundup Ready, but resistant to 2,4-D, which is a, supposed to be a much more toxic chemical than glyphosate. And they're so they're busy trying to find... Uh, do these uh, GMO products that are going to be resistant to other herbicides besides glyphosate. So now you're going to get a mix and match of multiple herbicides on your food, and that's going to be really, really bad because these these toxins always work synergistically to cause increased harm. When you've got two of them working together in concert, you can get really in much more trouble than what would be the sum of the two independent contributors. So it's really scary to me. And, they're you know, they're pushing these through, and it seems like the government is happy to approve of uh, these really scary changes that are going to introduce a, a complex plant that has both resistance to glyphosate and resistance to 2,4-D or resistance to atrazine. And this is just going to be really bad. Yeah, it, it's it's spooky. I have um, more and more friends because I, I was kind of an idiot regarding all of this stuff, and, and I still am on a lot of levels. Um, but I, I have so many friends who are doing so much research on this, and it just it's it's so spooky, um, you know. And to see other countries have banned it, you know, uh, ban these chemicals, but but not here in the U.S. You know, we're supposed to be this big power. Right country and protecting people but it just shows you know how the lobbyists can really leverage things right and, it, it, and the control become shocking but extremely clear to me that the government does not have our interest at heart and there's so much money in in this kind of agriculture when you think about it's really interesting because when you look at our country and how many what percentage of our population are farmers i think it's only like three percent which is astonishing because in a in the old days, in the agricultural sort of society, you had like 60% of your workers were farmers. So we've managed to make farming very, very efficient. We have these massive, huge, huge farms. They fly over, you know, and spray the uh, the glyphosate with an airplane. You know, they don't even have to be on the ground. And, mm-hmm. uh, and everything is automated with these big machines. And so you need very few people uh, to grow huge amounts of crops. So that sounds like a good thing. But when you're poisoning the world, you know, you're really, really messing up the ecosystem. We've got... So many animals in trouble. I mean, the monarch butterfly is a good example because the monarch butterfly eats milkweed, and milkweed grows among the corn, the GMO Roundup Ready corn. So the so the milkweed is getting sprayed with Roundup, and they're doing that intentionally. It's a weed, and they want to kill it. And the monarch eats the milkweed, gets the glyphosate, and dies. And so this is why monarch butterflies are. It looks like they're going to go extinct. I mean, they have gone way down, you know, and they used to be everywhere. That's just one example. The ladybug is another example. When I was a child, we had ladybugs all over the place. I never haven't seen one in a long time. They eat aphids, and aphids eat corn, and they get exposed to the glyphosate. So, the lady, so anything that eats insects is jeopardized because the insects are eating the herbicides, and then the herbicides are being picked up. It's up the food chain and getting picked up by the higher animals. So the bats in New England that are just in terrible ter- ter- uh, shape now with this white nose disease, which is a fungus, they too, I think, are is caused by the glyphosate. Glyphosate 
I think is causing all these fungal infections that are taking down different species. You know, our country has such a huge issue with species going extinct compared to when you look at the global situation. Our country is the worst in terms of species going extinct. And we use 25% of the world's glyphosate on the market. So we love glyphosate and we're poisoning everything in our environment with it, including ourselves. And we're causing huge harm to our health and this is why we have such a huge medical bill. I mean, in our country, we're practically, it looks like the government's going to go bankrupt trying to pay just to keep people, you know, to deal with all the medical issues that we're seeing. Because we have these really expensive diseases like Alzheimer's um, that are uh, caused by the chemicals that we're being exposed to. So we get really cheap food, but as a consequence, we're sick all the time, and we spend spend huge amounts of money on medical expenses. And so in the end, it's it's not a win, you know? It's just not a win, and we need to recognize that. It's so much better to be healthy than to yep. eat cheaply, you know? Well, in, in, even when you were talking about the fungal diseases, I mean, I'm seeing that in so many, again, friends, you know, where right. you know they're I having know. issues with lungs and they can't pin it down and they don't know what's going on. I mean, serious, where a couple of my friends almost died and they said, you know, it's it's some kind of either virus or um, some kind of fungal infection, and they're not Right, sure. I know. I've been hearing that from people also. I have a friend who just says she can't go to the Cape because they always have, you know, sort of wet, you know, and you're going to have some some kind of moss growing around the house, and they, she can't uh, stay there, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. she's so sensitive mm-hmm. to the, to the uh, mold. It's the mold, you know, which is a fungus. Yep. How yep. so many people are getting yep. you know, toxic mold? You hear a lot about that. Now, we never used to hear about toxic mold. And the thing is, the mold itself is not toxic, but because of your uh, of the d- disruption of your health, you become um, susceptible to mold infection. It's really mm-hmm. your problem rather than the mold's problem. Yeah, but it's really it's, scary. Yeah. And so we're going to go extinct, too, from fungal infections probably eventually if we keep this up, you know? Yeah, it's... it's Okay, there's so much that we don't know. Um, one of our um, uh, audience uh, guests, in fact, Terry is the one who connected me to you. She was asking, are the fungus becoming stronger because those that are able to, uh, let's see, able to withstand the, the gyla, is it gyla, gy, uh, no, I can't say that word either, gyphlosate, <laughs> Glyphosate. I knew you'd have trouble with it. Everyone has trouble with that word. Glyphosate. Glyphosate. Um, You can say Roundup if you like. I'll say Roundup. I'll say Roundup. Are are the only ones that are surviving, and so it's becoming stronger because they've got less competition out there? Do you think that has anything to do with it? Well, I have an explanation for the fungus. I've been trying to figure it out. I ask questions all the time. I always want to ask why. You know, I'm, I'm just deep, deep, deep into biology. I love it so much, and I always want to explain why, and I certainly see humans being susceptible to fungus, along with all these species dying because of fungus uh, problems. And it turns out, you know, fungus are actually, they're closer to us in in the evolutionary scale than the bacteria are, you know. And so they're sort of, um, I think what's happening is that our own cells are losing the ability to clean up their garbage. So the cells accumulate um, broken molecules that they can't get rid of. Usually they would want to break them down and then re- you know recycle them into new new products but they can't do that because they don't have and I think they can't do it because they don't have enough sulfate this is part of my theory my research and so the garbage builds up in our cells and then it turns out the fungus can actually get rid of the garbage without 
um, they don't they can get by with even though the exposure hasn't caused the same degree of degradation of their ability to to clear garbage. So they come in to the body and actually perform a service. This is what I think. This is a theory. You know, I don't have any any proof of this, but it's my hypothesis that they actually clear out the debris that we our own cells are unable to clear out because they're not working properly. So they're actually doing a service in the process of making us ill. Wow. If I'm right, you know, and, and of course they come in and clean up. You know, when when something dies, once once uh, it's sort of like dead tissue, right? When something dies, mm-hmm. it's the molds that come in and recycle those uh, dead products. So they're very good at that. They're very very good at clearing things that are dead. So when a cell has garbage, that's kind of the sort of thing that fungus can do well, you know. And okay. I understand why they would have garbage because of this lack of sulfate, because you need the sulfate in order to be able to break down. The debris, and of course, some of the debris is amyloid beta, which is building up in the Alzheimer's brain. So that fits well, also, that the amyloid beta is piling up because the cell is unable to recycle it. If it could break it down, it would be fine. It could make it and then break it down, and it would clear it. But if it can't clear it, it's going to build up. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Terry was also asking. She says that she remembers reading that antibacterial soaps aren't aren't always. Um, such a good thing because they'll only I never I never use them. They're uh-huh. terrible actually. I'm so upset when I go to the store and I see all these antibacterial soaps and there's just one over in the corner that's not. It's just crazy. You know, we've gotten so obsessed with with killing life. And that's our whole game is killing life. You know, the starting with the vaccines, make sure that you you can't uh, have the disease, you know, get the vaccine. And then antibiotics, you know, take all these antibiotics to kill the various bacteria that are growing. And then antibacterial soap. And, and glyphosate is actually also an antibiotic. It's actually been pat- patented as an antimicrobial agent. It kills all plants. It kills pretty much all microbes, you know. I mean, it's, there's very few that can uh, survive in the context of, of uh, glyphosate exposure. It's a really nasty Molecule, and I believe that it has devastating effects on effects on animals, um, which you can find out by reading the research literature and then interpreting it in terms of understanding what does glyphosate do and how would that impact humans. And it becomes very clear that it would have devastating consequences if we're getting chronic low-grade exposure to glyphosate. That's like eating an antibiotic, a low-grade antibiotic, all the time. And you know that if you eat antibiotics, you're going to mess up your gut bacteria, and that's what happens with glyphosate. It causes the pathogens to overgrow, and then the pathogens um, get in. You know, escape. first of all, they produce toxic chemicals like toxic phenols that can affect um, um, brain health, and um, and then they also get into the blood, get into the brain. You know, my, uh, microbes in the brain is associated with Alzheimer's disease. So uh, the glyphosate is making the leaky gut that allows the microbes to get out of the gut where they're, they're supposed to be confined to the gut, but they're not. And that can cause uh, some of the issues with Alzheimer's disease. Wow. wow. Interesting. <laughs> it's uh, there, There's just so much to know. How do you, I, I mean, this might sound kind of silly, but what types of foods, do you eat? Do you grow your own? I mean, what? How do we? How do, how <laughs> I do we? I am so thankful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to. I can't. You can't be a hundred percent organic in this in this country. It's almost impossible unless you just, you know, become really fanatic. So I sometimes just admit that I'm eating something that's not organic. But at home, when we shop, we we are, try very hard to buy a hundred percent organic food, and we buy. Luckily, we have a Whole Foods near our house, and Whole Foods has become more and more organic. It's really exciting. I'm very pleased. Every day I go, it feels like 
they've got more organic choices. You know, they just came out with an organic full-fat yogurt, and I've decided that now I can eat yogurt again because I won't buy low-fat or non-fat yogurt. I really believe in fat. And when you have the combination of full-fat and organic, it's extremely hard to find. But I just bought uh, a Whole Foods-owned product, which is delicious, of a full-fat Plain yogurt, um, organic, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I eat a lot of, I eat a lot of dairy actually, organic dairy. You can get organic whole milk, no problem, you know. And, um, organic half and half, all these. I mean, I like, uh, fat, as you can imagine. <laughs> and I think, mm-hmm. uh, you've probably talked about fat and Alzheimer's, but I believe that a low fat diet is a bad idea if you're trying to avoid Alzheimer's disease. And you've probably talked about that on this show. You know, it's you? been a, it, it's been a while, so feel free to uh, give us your thoughts on that. I mean, um, I would love to hear love to hear what your thoughts are. Right, and so for example, coconut oil uh, coconut oil is a really good uh, food for Alzheimer's patients, and um, it's good in general. And in fact, we cook with coconut oil. We use that as our oil uh, in cooking, and we cook a lot of stir fried vegetables. So we basically cook like vegetables stir fried in coconut oil. And we use a lot of garlic. Garlic is really good because it's a source of sulfur. It's a really good source of sulfur. And uh, I believe sulfur deficiency is a huge problem in the modern diet. So I go after foods that contain sulfur. That includes eggs, by the way. Egg yolk in particular, but egg white also contains sulfur. Egg yolk contains a lot of nutrients, and particularly all the minerals and the vitamins that you need to be healthy. And uh, we suffer from a severe mineral deficiency problem in this country. And that is in large part, I think, because glyphosate chelates minerals. It puts a, It's very good at putting a cage. It builds a glyphosate cage around the mineral and makes it inaccessible to the bacteria in your gut and also to your own cells. So we have a huge problem with many different minerals because of the exposure to glyphosate in our food. This is something that I've talked about a lot in my papers. So you need to eat foods that are rich in minerals. So this includes, you know, green vegetables, cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and um, cabbage and uh, Brussels sprouts. These are all really healthy foods. Stir-fried in coconut oil. This is just what I eat. I eat a lot of bacon. Organic, you can get really great organic grass-fed bacon. A terrific food. So this is, again, high fat. So, so, so interestingly enough, lard is a very healthy fat and in fact, in general, saturated fat is much healthier than unsaturated fat. And this is really because it cannot be oxidized. People don't understand this. It's a very simple science that uh, the danger with fats is if they get oxidized. And once they get oxidized, they create a cascade, and that causes a lot of damage to the cell, and particularly to the neurons. The neurons are very susceptible to oxidative damage, which will be um, much worse in the context of unsaturated fats rather than saturated fats. Saturated fats cannot be oxidized. They're already fully oxidized and therefore they're safe. And um, so I like to eat foods that are rich in saturated fat and that includes the animal fats like butter and um, whole milk, cream. Um, Sour cream is great because it's also um, fermented and fermented foods are really good also. So fermented foods, and that means cheese. I eat a lot of cheese and, um, and yogurt, I mentioned that. Those are fermented dairy products because dairy has a lot of uh, nutritional value. So you're looking for foods that have a lot more than just calories in them. And then you're looking for organic food, and then you're looking for high fat, but it needs to be quality fat, which is saturated fat. Coconut is especially important. In fact, the entire coconut is really good. The coconut water has all kinds of minerals in it. It's incredibly healthy for you. And the coconut oil is a very interesting oil because it's a medium-chain oil, and it actually goes... It's processed um, by the gut by becoming sulfated, and it carries sulfate from the gut to the liver. 
And uh, the big thing that I've identified as a key problem with modern health is insufficient sulfate supply to the liver. So coconut oil is a really good way to get sulfate to the liver, which is one of the reasons why I think coconut is so good for Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's patients, uh, why I, have, I saw a study that showed that Alzheimer's patients had, they looked at the different fats in the brain post-mortem, and they found that the only fat, the only lipid, sort of these lipid class of molecules, um, which was out of whack, was something called sulfatide. And sulfatide is the only lipid that has this, is sulfonated, that has this sulfate um, attached to it, which is so important for the cellular health, for the well-being of the cells. So, I mean, I believe sulfate deficiency in the brain is a key component of Alzheimer's. Not the whole story, but I think it's a key component. And I mentioned before that you need the sulfate to be able to break down the debris. That's because sulfate creates a really acidic environment. You know, you've heard of sulfuric acid, which is a really strong acid, but the cells are able to put the sulfate into the lysosome, which is their um, basically their stomach. It's the cell's um, organelle that is involved with breaking down and recycling debris. And so when you don't have enough sulfate, then the lysosome cannot become sufficiently acidic, and therefore it can't break down the amyloid beta, and you end up with this uh, with this debris in the cells that's part of the Alzheimer's syndrome. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting because you know you always you always hear you know low fat diets and this and that and and you're really saying that that's not good. Some of the conversation in our chat box is really interesting with Elva uh, and Terry. Um, and they seem very up on all of this too. Elva is saying you know health is so dependent on on basically our you know our, our micro. Um, um, biomine in our Biome. in the gut, mm-hmm. and in the gut, right. and she says with all the chemicals in our foods, you know, it's just getting so out of balance. So she's asking, you know, are there prebiotics, which I've never heard of. I've heard of probiotics, but I've never heard of prebiotics. Um, and probiotic supplements um, are those important for us to eat? And fermented foods are they are they recommended? And so, if you can speak to prebiotics and probiotics, maybe tell us what the difference is. And then, um, same with the fermented foods and and what is recommended. Yeah. Now, I'm sorry to say that I don't actually. When I'm, I'm just thinking, do, do I know the distinction between prebiotics and probiotics? And I think that I don't know the distinction. Uh, it might be. One of them is actual bacteria, and the other one is sort of nutrition that would be good for bacteria. But I'm just guessing on that. I actually don't know the difference. I'll go back and look that off, look that up as soon as I get off the phone. I hate it when I don't know something, but I don't know that I don't know the answer to that. But I definitely believe in eating fermented foods um, wholeheartedly. And there's also, you know, cabbage. You can do fermented cabbage like sauerkraut. And then uh, if you buy them, you can buy them so that they still have live bacteria. So that's becoming a really good source of bacteria. I don't personally like the idea of taking a pill, so I'm resistant to, to the idea of taking a, one of these uh, supplements that you can buy that's a, you know millions of bacteria in a pill. But I do, have, I do know that people have done that successfully, and um, especially if you have a disrupted gut. I mean, my gut's healthy, so I don't need it. And especially probably because I eat so many uh, fermented foods that I've kept my gut healthy. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the better way to do it if you can. But if you have a really sick gut, I think definitely uh, taking probiotics and prebiotics would probably be uh, advised, at least temporarily, in order to get it back on track. Okay. 
Elva is saying that she um, she agrees the low fat diet is bad and she eats low low carb instead. Oh, how do you feel about the yes. low carb diets? I love it. I love it. Okay, that's what we do. And, and my husband oh. is, has diabetes, uh, adult onset diabetes, and he's been on a low uh, low carb diet for a long time, and he's doing fantastically well. His numbers keep going down. I mean, his. Uh, Hemoglobin 1C is going down. He's dropping back on his medicines. I mean, it's amazing. He's just gotten healthier and healthier as he's grown older. And because of this uh, organic, organic's important, by the way, for the diabetes, because that's also one of the conditions that's going up in step with glyphosate usage on corn and soy. And I can understand how it would be causing diabetes. And, of course, you've probably heard the term type 3 diabetes applied to the brain. Have you heard about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we wrote a paper on that. I wrote a paper together with colleagues on that some years ago. You're trying to say something. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say with uh yeah. I'm very familiar with um with Dr. Bill Fry who um, mm-hmm. you know has has you know started this like 20 years ago off a dream <laughs> getting through the blood brain barrier and stuff and now yes. there's, there's clinical trials all over the place and um the connection and it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, you know right. what they're what they're finding out, but you know there's we have so far to go before we have any any answers at all. Um, we've got some more comments here in our in our chat room. Um, let's see, Terry is saying you know ideally raw natural milks are healthier um, as a source of dairy yeah. because they hold the bacteria and the enzymes that the body needs. And like you were saying, we're so we're, we're trying to get rid of everything, and there's a reason yes. it's. It I know there. that's what's so annoying with milk that they're like so careful to police and you know they don't want anybody to try to sell raw milk and that is incredibly healthy food if you have access to raw milk from a farm it is fabulous to uh, to drink that you know and um it's hard to get because of all the restrictions and it's just a shame that they there's this whole mentality right now as i said of just kill 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 you know and that's part of the thing with the milk you boil the milk you kill all the bacteria and you know then you prevent the chance of getting this infection but if you're eating Raw milk from a wholesome cow that's been fed, you know, organic food. And, of course, that's hard to find, <laughs> but it's doable. I mean, you can get organic milk pretty easily, but organic raw milk is probably really hard to get and um, extremely, extremely healthy. I mean, if I had a sick infant, I would I would find a way to get organic raw milk. I mean, I couldn't nurse or something, you know. It would yep. be really, really yep. important. Yeah. Now, Elva is asking, is there a way to access some of the papers and things that you have written is there uh yes. she'd like to link it on her Facebook page and things? So that I didn't know if that would be super. That would be super, yes. Um I so I I put a lot of my stuff on my own webpage, which is at MIT. It's not an easy webpage to remember, but I can give it to you. It's called People, P E O P L E dot C Sale, C S A I L. That's my lab, Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Dot MIT dot EDU slash Senef S E N E F F. And I've posted um, most of my papers and uh, and lots and lots of slides. I have various talks I've given. And also I have some links to some of the interviews that I've done, not all of them. And you can also find other interviews that I've done by typing my name into a Google search engine. Luckily, my name is rare. So if you type even Senef, you'll probably find, if you can remember that last name, S-E-N-E-F-F, you'll find my stuff. Various interviews. I've done a Mercola interview. I've done an uh, interview with Jeffrey Smith, who's the uh, anti-GMO advocate. 
Um, so I have a lot of stuff uh, available. If you like to watch video, then you, I've got some of that. And if you like to wa- uh, look at slides, I've got them posted. And also articles, um, technical articles, which are a little harder to understand. But So lots of stuff, yeah. Okay. You can find well, on the web. Wonderful. And that is, um, if you go to our homepage for the radio show um, or the blog, it is listed there as well. So you can just click on that. Um Let's see, Terry is asking, are Alzheimer's patients' bodies, do they tend to be overall non-acidic in terms of pH, or is there a specific, or is it specific to cells and lipids in the brain? Um, are you aware of that or have a comment on that yeah, at all? Yeah, no, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I talked about the inability to get to this really acidic uh, level that you need. The lysosome needs to get really acidic in order to be able to break things down into a sort of toxic acidic level and it's done very carefully wrapped up inside a shell the membrane of the lysosome depends upon cholesterol so if it doesn't have enough cholesterol and it doesn't have enough sulfate it's going to be in really big trouble because without the cholesterol then the ions are going to leak back out so it needs to sort of pump hydrogen ions into that lysosome to make that acidic environment and it needs to be able to have access to this sulfate which is um which is attached to um sugars actually that are stored outside the cell so this i think is what's causing also the diabetes. So you have the type 3 diabetes, which is in the brain, resistance to ins- you know, insulin resistance, and not insulin resistance, but it's a um, sugar, an inability to process sugar in the brain. Of course, that's really bad news because the brain usually really loves sugar. I mean, the, the brain um, depends upon sugar as its main source of fuel. And um, when it can't process the sugar properly, then you're going to have trouble thinking, you know, because you won't get enough fuel. And you've got to start using uh, alternative fuels which is problematic because one of the things that happens is that you get high glutamate uh, in the brain because glutamate can be an alternative source of energy, um, which is um, but it's dangerous because it's also excitotoxic. So uh, there's a lot of papers about excess glutamate in the brain in association with both autism and Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I think it's because the sugar is not... It's not able to process the sugar effectively, so it needs to do the glutamate instead. It can bypass the first stage of the um, of the process that's used to break down um, fuel sources. I don't want to get. I'm trying not to get technical here, but um, you know, in the mitochondria, so the mitochondria, the first step that they use, it, they need, they can omit it if they have glutamate coming in. They can skip that step, and that first stage in the mitochondria is often in trouble in association with Alzheimer's. It's not working properly. It's got too many, it's releasing too many um, reactive oxygen species that are going to damage a cell. And it's, you know, it's going to make the lipids uh, um, become oxidized and then that's going to cause this cascade that's going to just basically bust a bunch of molecules in the cell. And then if it can't get the lysosome working properly to break down those tissue, those broken molecules, then you're going to just get a total mess, you know. So the cells are just, and the neurons really, they're not able to... Um, Multiply the neurons are stuck, you know, for life as this uh, single cell that has to just keep working. So when they get in trouble with these kinds of things, they get to the point where they just have to die. And then if you start losing too many neurons, you're going to start having mental problems, you know. So it's a nasty situation with the sugar. And the sugar, so the sugar is unable to be properly processed, I think in part because there's not enough sulfate and also because there's not enough cholesterol. Both of those are needed to properly process the sugar. So a lot of my papers are about this concept I have of what I call cholesterol sulfate deficiency. There's a molecule called cholesterol sulfate, which I consider to be an incredibly important molecule in the body. 
And a lot of these toxic chemicals, including both glyphosate and aluminum, mess up the body's ability to make cholesterol sulfate and also mess up the body's ability to transport sulfate. So you get into this issue of sulfate deficiency, which then disrupts lots of things in, wow. in the brain. Well, there's uh, someone had looked up um, the probiotic versus the the prebiotic. Oh, good. We have the answer. Yeah, and Elva said from Wicked. This is from Wikipedia. Prebiotics are non-digestible fiber compounds that pass undigested okay. through the upper part of the gastric tract and stimulate growth or activity um, for uh, for the bacteria to colonize um, in the large bowel. Okay. So. That's great. That's actually sort of what I guessed because I said that one of them would be as nutrients to help the bacteria to grow. So that's what the fiber would be because we can't digest fiber, but the gut bacteria really love the fiber. So basically uh-huh. prebiotics would be fiber. Right. Fiber is to help uh, nurture the, the bacteria and allow them to grow. Thank Wonderful. you. That's great. I hope I'll remember yeah. that next time. <laughs> well, in the the whole coconut oil that you bring up, um, Elva is saying coconut oil feeds the brain in lieu of the yes. glucose, she's she's wondering if that's if that's correct that it feeds the brain in lieu in lieu of glucose. Yeah, now you would think so, but interestingly, the brain actually refuses to eat fat. And I find this really really interesting. It refuses to use fat as a fuel. That's a unique property of the brain, and the reason why is because fat is very very valuable to the brain for its uh, neurons for the axons. It needs to have enough fat to be able to coat the. Um, the axons, so that they can transmit the signal without leaking, and also, of course, mm-hmm. to protect the cells from oxidative damage. So the brain actually uses the uh, fat as building material to make it healthy rather than as fuel. It does not use fat as fuel. And a lot of people actually think if you have a high-fat diet and don't eat enough carbs that you're going to starve your brain. I've heard people say that, that your brain won't get enough fuel because you're not uh, providing enough carbs. It's interesting. You know, People will argue you need to eat a lot of sugar to feed the brain. Um, but the brain can eat other things besides sugar. In fact, lactate is a wonderful fuel for the brain. That's what you get from the fermented foods. Mm-hmm. I think lactate is a terrific fuel. Um, and they can also eat, interestingly enough, alcohol. So I think one of the benefits of alcohol is that it's an uh, alternative fuel for the brain. And you know when you drink alcohol, you just kind of get a brain buzz, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, alcohol is considered something uh, bad for you, but actually in moderation, you know, alcohol comes out pretty well. People who drink moderate amounts of alcohol um, have health benefits from it, particularly, of course, if you're drinking organic alcohol. And we have found a couple good choices for organic wine and organic beer. Okay. Are you there? Yeah, you're yep, good. Yep, <laughs> I, yep, I, yep, I'm here. I was I was reading some stuff. Terry said, isn't alcohol a sugar, though? No, it's not, but it's it, it's not a sugar. It's not. Okay. I just I just remember in high school making wine and it was like all sugar and grape juice or something, you know. Right. Back. No, no. So alcohol. So both. You know. So fermentation, of course, produces alcohol. Like if you drink beer, that's a fermented product. Beer and wine are, are fermented, but you um, you're you're turning. You start with sugar. So you start with sugar and you convert it to something different. And that's the same thing with lactate. So the bacteria actually process the sugar and turn it into something different from sugar which is either the alcohol or the lactate. And in fact, the gut bacteria can turn sugar, they can turn fructose into fat. They actually produce these very short-chain fatty acids from fructose. Uh, Fructose is, of course, the sugar that's in fruit. It's also the sugar that's in high-fructose corn syrup. And um, the gut bacteria turn that into fat. 
So things can get converted from one one kind of food to another uh, through the activity of the gut bacteria or by essentially having bacteria work for you outside the gut. That's what the fermented foods are about. You're getting help from bacteria, but they're not in your gut to produce alcohol and lactate, uh, which was originally sugar. Okay. So how does someone, you know, if they're having some health issues, um, I, because I kind of feel, and maybe I'm I'm wrong on this, and, and please correct me if I am, but I think this whole gut bacteria, I mean, there's a lot of doctors that don't know about this or look into this. I, I, it kind of feels to me almost like dementia. There's so much more education that needs to be done when looking yes. into to different things. Is is that your your read on it too. It just seems oh, like Oh, totally. I mean, I'm excited about how many papers are coming out now from the research uh, groups on gut bacteria. They're like, "Oh my god, we forgot about this." You know, there's like huge If you look at the just the microbiome's genome, it's like huge compared to ours. They have like a a hundredfold more genes than we have. I mean, our cells are just a minor, oh. very minor part of our gene pool, you know? Just different genes because you've got all these different bacteria growing. And each gut is unique, you know. It's so complicated. You read these papers and there's all these, you know, you, it's hard to see the signal because there's so much noise. There's just like so many different bacteria and so many different amounts that can be there. And we don't understand. We just have barely tapped the, the you know, tapped into this space. And the researchers are realizing that it's really, really important uh, only recently. And so there's a lot of excitement about it. Um, but it's a daunting task to understand all the complexity. But I believe that... And your gut bacteria, as they uh, adjust to the diet you're eating, uh, the ones that win out, you know, so the whole bunch of them are getting killed by glyphosate, and then the other ones are growing more populous. And the ones that grow more populous will actually communicate with your brain in many ways. They can, for example, lactobacillus will protect from anxiety. So if you don't have enough lactobacillus, which gets killed by glyphosate, you're going to get anxious. And we've got a huge problem with anxiety in this country today. And it's connected to um, autism, probably connected to Alzheimer's too, but I don't know that for a fact. Um, and so basically, if you get an overgrowth of bacteria that um, that have um, – you, people get into sort of a mode where they just want to uh, gorge on carbs, almost like a carb addiction. And there's now a belief that the gut, gut bacteria may be causing that addiction. They actually communicate to the brain and demand that you eat the foods that they want, you know, because those bacteria – grow well on those foods, and they're the ones that are winning out because the other ones are all getting killed. You know, So you can really end up with a nasty feedback loop where you start eating the foods that are not good for you because those are the foods that will support the bacteria that have won out. But they've won out because the other ones got killed by the poison. You know, mm-hmm. And then you get into obesity and all these issues from eating a really bad diet. So you see that in people. You, know, you see people who just you know, eat tons of carbs and get almost uh, binging, carb binging, almost like an addiction. And uh, and there's a belief, there are papers that have been written that suggest that this is due to an overgrowth of certain bacteria that are uh, influencing your brain and forcing you to to just become obsessed with eating carbohydrates. Really fascinating stuff that I've been reading about recently. There's a lot to oh. learn. I mean, we know, there's so much to learn. And there are a lot of people that are working hard trying to figure it all out. So it'll, it's exciting to see the new papers coming out. Yeah, there is there is so much to learn, and like I said, I am 
so much a novice in this area, but I just hear I'm hearing more and more chatter. We all are. On it <laughs> we constantly, all are. <laughs> which is, and it's it's spooky because there's so there's so much to learn, and we really didn't even in, get a chance to talk. And I'd like to have you touch about um, the aluminum factor and how that can cause oh, harm. Oh, I know. That thanks yes, too. that's very much connected to Alzheimer's, in my opinion. And we also didn't talk about the pineal gland. We'll have to have another conversation because there's a lot more to cover. But the pineal gland is a uh, in in the brain, which is in the center of the brain behind the eyes, um, is very susceptible to aluminum. It 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 ends up with a lot more aluminum than other parts of the brain when you're exposed to it, and it uh, and the aluminum messes it up. And the pineal gland produces melatonin, which controls the wake sleep cycle, and sleep disorders associated with all these different neurological diseases, including Alzheimer's, dementia, and I believe that this pineal gland vulnerability to aluminum is part of the uh, issue there. And the glyphosate actually makes the aluminum much more toxic than it would otherwise be. They work synergistically to cause harm. I'm writing papers about that. Wow. Spooky, spooky stuff. How do people, where does the aluminum come from? Um, where do we Where do we get that? Is there Are there things people Good can question. stay away from? Yes, there are. It's actually pretty easy, I think. First of all, you can. there's ways you're getting it that you don't realize, and it's pretty easy to avoid. One is antiperspirants. They they almost always contain aluminum, so you're spraying it under your arms and it can come in through your skin. Um, sunscreen, high-end sunscreens have aluminum to, uh, emulsifier, and that can also just get go right in through your skin and, and get into your body. Uh, aluminum antacids, so if you're taking antacids that contain, like, you know, and milk of magnesia, I think, contains aluminum. And mylanta, mm-hmm. um, you know, antacids that contain aluminum. Especially if you have a leaky gut, then that aluminum is going to get in. Usually your gut's good at keeping it out. But, and, of course, vaccines, which I really am upset about vaccines because many vaccines contain aluminum, including the one that the child gets at the, on the day of birth, which is the uh, hepatitis B. It's, there's absolutely no excuse to give a child a hepatitis B vaccine on the day of birth, giving them aluminum as their first start in life. It's really scary because that's the vaccines. All the aluminum in the vaccine gets in because there's no... The, the 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 shot brings it past all the barriers. You get 100% of the aluminum into the body, and I think it's causing a great deal of problems with the children. And we keep on adding more and more. For example, we just added the um, Gardasil as a vaccine for the teenage girls and even the boys. Gardasil is supposed to protect from cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been really good ad- adaptation of it. A lot of pa- parents have resisted it, which I'm glad to hear because the Gardasil contains a pretty uh, toxic dose of aluminum and is also a very um, dangerous vaccine. I've studied the vaccines, and I've seen that Gardasil has far worse side effects than other vaccines uh, that these kids are exposed to, really dangerous side effects, especially involving the brain. And I think that's because of the aluminum, partly because of the aluminum in the vaccine. Wow, it's and it's spooky because so many of these we have to have. I mean, or they can't go to school, and um, I know and it's, it's required. The government is, of course, again obsessed on sort of anti-life. I call this anti-life. You know, you're sort of like you think it sounds good that you can just take a vaccine and then not get the chicken pox, but actually, I think you're better off to get the chicken pox the way it used to be when I was a kid. We got the measles, we got the chicken pox, we got the mumps. You know, it was a rite of passage in childhood, and I think it has something to do with the development of the immune system of the child and when you don't get these diseases your immune system doesn't develop properly we have huge problems with autoimmune diseases you know and um and various allergies and asthma and all these things that the kids are coping with today 
And I think in part that's uh, due to the exposure that they're getting to the toxic chemicals that are in the vaccines. We, at least we need to find a way to do the vaccines that doesn't involve aluminum, for example, without replacing it with something equally toxic. Yep. Terry's got one one last quick question here for you. In terms of vaccines, she's saying, can you touch on the possible connection between all the adjuncts like peanut oil um, in the vaccines in connection with extreme allergies that people are experiencing? Any thoughts on that? I do. In fact, I'm fascinated by that. And I remember a few years back um, sort of browsing the web and coming across a web page where a woman had done a very um, meticulous study and she determined that all of the, she looked at all these uh, foods that we tend to be allergic to, like egg or peanut oil or soy, you know, and um, wheat. And she found uh, for every single one that she could find, she found a vaccine that contained it. And um, and she And she claimed, and I agree with her, that the having that present in the vaccine is causing it to show up in an uh, abnormal circumstance. So basically, if you put peanut oil, and especially if you've got aluminum in there, and if the aluminum somehow binds to the peanut oil, you could imagine that it's producing a product that looks toxic to the human cells, Mm -hmm. to the immune system. And so the immune system rages an attack against this weird-looking molecule and uh, ends up then thinking, well, let me just recognize this peanut oil part of it, you know, not realizing that that means you'll never be able to eat peanuts again. You know, it's sort of like the body makes a huge mistake by responding to this um, weird-looking molecule. I think that's what's going on with gluten intolerance in a different way because, and we didn't talk about this, but the glyphosate, which is Roundup, Roundup is sprayed these days on wheat right before the harvest in order to kill the plant. It's not a Roundup-ready plant, but they spray it in order to kill it. And um, so the Roundup ends up in the uh, wheat product, and this is, I think, why we have an epidemic in gluten intolerance today. I have a paper on that with Anthony Samsel when we were really surprised at all the different links we could show between what glyphosate does and all the symptoms of celiac disease, which is this uh, you know, severe form of gluten intolerance. But we've got now all these gluten-free sections of the – it's a big business now, gluten-free, and it didn't used to be the case. Wheat used to be considered a healthy food. And now all of a sudden everybody's allergic to it. And I think that's a similar phenomenon, but it's because glyphosate is bound, um, is attached, and therefore it becomes something foreign, you know, something unusual that the body wants to react to. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, this has just been a fascinating hour. I can't believe how it's blown by so quickly. I know. I, I agree. I, it went by very fast. Appreciate all of your your time. I would love to have you back on the show to continue this conversation. There's so much for us to learn um, with all of this. It's just uh, absolutely fascinating to me. And I can tell from our guests here as well, they're, they are um, loving the conversation. So um, Great. Would, you lo- would, would you like to come back and visit us again? I would I be delighted. I would be delighted, yes. It's painless. <laughs> I'm always <laughs> well, eager to good. get my message out. So uh, certainly I'd be delighted to come back. Good. So we'll arrange a, you- another date. Great. Do you want to give people your uh, website once again? Okay. Yes. Uh, people, P-E-O-P-L-E dot C-S-A-I-L, C-S-A-I-L, Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory dot M-I-T dot E-D-U slash S-E-N-E-F-F, my last name, Senef. And again, you can just search Senef on the web. Well, great. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for your time today. This has just been absolutely wonderful. You've given us a lot of great information. I know for me, I have personally learned a ton and um, look forward to having you back on the show again. Thank you. It was my pleasure. 
Okay, great. I'm going to go ahead and do our uh, mid-program highlights here, and then I will introduce our second guest. Um, Just to let you know, our last show was on the 26th, and we talked about dementia research with Neurotroop, and that was a really fascinating conversation as well with some of the treatment challenges and and the development of a virostatin that they have uh, going right now in some of their partnerships. We also talked about um, the last NAPA meeting and a couple of the speeches that were made. Uh, One was by Michael Allen Bogan and his uh, wife, Sherry, very much from the heart. Michael has dementia. His wife, of course, is caring uh, for him as his care partner. And um, uh, they... They really let our uh, national uh, Alzheimer's plan know uh, where they felt that they have failed and where they've succeeded and where they'd like to see them go in the future. Our next show next week is also going to be on food, and this is going to be a fascinating show as well. I'm going to have The Grind with us, and they have a new process for food delivery. So it's kind of ironic that these shows went back to back, um, but a really, really interesting concept for people to be able to eat finger food so that they feel uh, uh, more empowered uh, to be able to feed themselves and the the food is is actually grind up and then um, molded and plated and it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, you would never, ever know uh, that this is something to help somebody with a disease because it really looks like a gourmet gourmet dish. So that'll be uh, fun to discuss. Our last dementia chat uh, was last week, and there again we talked kind of about that NAPA session in a little bit more detail and what advice people would give to someone who's recently diagnosed with dementia. Our next Dementia Chats, again, which is our free webinar where our experts have dementia and the public can come in um, and ask any questions or make any comments, have a conversation with us, will be on the 9th. Um, some of our blog posts I'll just mention. Michelle, our intern, just wrote one yesterday uh, called The Smallest Things. And Michelle always gets great comments on her her writing. She always has some nice insight. I did post that I'm going to be out in, uh, out in Pennsylvania doing a session called Academic Verse Grassroots Effort. And I'm going to be uh, speaking to the Phoebe Ministries on October 16th. I'll also be speaking out there, I'm going to be staying out there a couple of weeks, to the Erie and Pittsburgh Alzheimer's Associations at their uh, annual conferences, which I'm very excited about. And then um, we had a an article from the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention, which was again all about nutrition and what you what you deserve to know. Talked again about the free memory screenings at the Minnesota State Fair, which is now over, um, which again uh, was done by Health Star Home Health, which is one of our new partners who I'm I'm just so excited to be associated with them. They're doing some really cool stuff. They're going to be kicking off um, memory cafes and um, They are just in this for the long haul, so very, very fun. Let me go ahead and introduce our second guest here, who I'm just honored to have with us uh, as well. Rob White uh, is the National Director of Culinary Operations, and he joined the Goodman Group back in 2013 after serving for 15 years as the Dean of Culinary 
for the Culinary Institute in Michigan. Chef White has over 30 years of culinary experience in higher education, hotels, country clubs, uh, private residence, and corporate food service. He's an active active member of the American Culinary Foundation, and he serves as the chapter president uh, for more than 16 years. He was indicted into the American Academy of Chefs in 2010. Um, he's got just lots of great awards. Um, he's he's uh, oh, it's just a privilege to have him with us, I guess, is, is the only way to state it. So I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation of what he's doing and why he's he's uh, doing what he's doing now. So welcome, Chef White. How are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing wonderful. Doing wonderful. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with us on the show today. Um, you've got an impressive background there. And, uh, you know, uh, first of all, I, I always like to ask um, – you know, have you been personally touched by dementia, you know, with family or friend members at all? No, I haven't. Um, oh. That hasn't come into our family, and uh, so I have not been had, had a look at it firsthand except for with our residents that we have in our communities. Okay, okay. Well, it's just always nice to nice to know. Um, and, you know, with your variety of backgrounds, um, did you see this as a big change kind of going into, you know, more assisted living and, and memory care uh, communities versus what you were doing before? Was that a big shift for you? Um, yeah, it was. You know, you know, my background is predominantly hotels and restaurants and country clubs, a lot of higher education, but um, making the switch into uh, coming to the Goodman Group, I I felt um, kind of I, I could bring a little bit of of what I knew um, about the food industry and, and bring it into our communities and, and hopefully make a difference for our residents that we have here. But Wonderful. It's been quite, quite a change, yeah. Yeah, I I would I would think the the scope would be. Definitely a little bit different, it, though. You know, the senior housing environment um, has has really changed over the years. From what a lot of people still, you know, there's a lot of myths I think behind um, senior communities and um, and presentation in terms of of what is expected there. And so it's it's nice. I always encourage people to go out and and tour. You know, and a lot of times you can. Get a meal too, um, in that during that tour, and have a conversation to kind of really see what life is like. Um, were you a little bit surprised in terms of of what senior communities lo- were like in the healthcare industry? Uh, yeah, you know, some were better than I thought. Some were not as strong as they possibly could be. But yeah, it was uh, definitely an eye opening experience. You know, and I'm very lucky to have, have found a company that. Um, that I thought, I, I, when I walked in the door, I was like, wow, the Goodman Group really um, really had a, a, a clear view of what they wanted to do um, and just needed the right, the right person, I think, to come in and help them accomplish their goals. And so that was very eye-opening for me is that it was already a company that was um, very forward-thinking, looking at nutrition, not just as in uh, feeding the residents every day, but really as looking at nutrition and food to improve the quality of life. And, and to me that was, uh, for what I knew before, 
um, coming to the Goodman Group was really something I wanted to be involved in. And so it was very forward-thinking when I when I was looking at this company. So, yeah, it's great to be part of. Yeah, they're doing some pretty cool things. Uh, they really are cutting edge and really making making some headway. Can you tell people kind of what is the scope of, of your work um, in, you know, in the Goodman Group with uh, with senior living and the healthcare industry? Oh, sure. <clears throat> Basically, as the national director, I'm, I'm in charge of all of the food service operations for all of the Goodman Group properties. So um, it has a lot to do with rolling out company initiatives, and a big initiative that we have working on and, and implementing is our Food for Life initiative, and, and Will can talk about that in a little bit, but um, really it comes down to uh, training chefs, finding, first of all, finding the right chefs, um, our properties, um, and people to run our operations in there, training the staff, um, doing um, resident education, family education uh, about nutrition, um, uh, getting in there, developing menus, um, developing plating standards, all the kind of stuff that a, that a chef would do in a regular restaurant environment, except I just have to do it for 33 properties. So it's a blast. <laughs> I really enjoy it. So how do you run around to 33 properties? <laughs> I travel a, a lot, put it that way. I spend a lot of time on the road. Um, I, I, but it's great. I, I we have some really outstanding chefs that uh, that are in the in the company that are just a pleasure to work with. Oh, that's nice. You know, having good employees uh, to to back your concepts is so critical, and I think sometimes very underlooked um, that that I have seen in uh, in some cases. You know, and it's it's hard to produce that quality if you don't have consistent consistent staff. And um, I would imagine that that's got to be a, a key factor for you in terms of being able to meet your goals. Oh, absolutely. I think part of the part of the issue, not just uh, across the board, across the country, really, with um, senior uh, senior housing is and, and senior living is really the fact that there are a lot of um, people running the food operations that have a very strong clinical background, which is fantastic. Our residents need that. But they don't have a strong food background. So what you get is a almost a very institutional look at, at what food should be, and, and that's not what the Goodman Group wanted to do or, or has been doing. And, and so I'm, I'm very happy um, that I work with a group of, of chefs, and, and, and our, our people that run our operations, they are chefs, and they have a very strong, strong passion for food, dedication for putting out quality food, um, and really bringing a, a whole new look at, at how a food operation should run within a, in a senior living environment. And so it's great to see. It, it was really eye-opening to know that you know, properties that I, I went to outside of the Goodman Group that I visited just didn't have people who, are in, who had a strong background in food running the food operations. More clinical, but not restaurant or chef or, you know, professionally culinarily trained people. And um, and I think that that kind of put us in a situation across the country of where we're at now. And we're starting to dig ourselves out of a hole. I mean, I think we can elevate the food operations across the country um, within our company and within any, if we put the right people in place. Chefs need to make that transition from restaurants into 
senior living communities. It's a fantastic way to still be creative with food and really make a difference in people's lives. I agree. Can you tell us what some of the challenges and opportunities are in in managing the culinary operations in in a senior living? Well, it's a little bit different for for our company. I'll just go specifically cuz you know, I have we have properties from Oregon to Florida. So that's a regional thing. I mean, what the the food preferences and and what people like, but what what we're trying to do, some of the challenges we run into is is introducing new foods to people who have, you know, for many, many years um, had a very specific diet or were very used to certain foods. And some of them aren't, aren't always as healthy as you would like them to be or they would like them to be. So I think the biggest challenge really has been introducing uh, different types of food or foods maybe they're not used to that are much, much healthier um, and trying to bring that in and open up their eyes. Education is our education components in all of the communities have been very well received by the residents and the resident families, and so mm-hmm. that's been very very good. Um, I mean, I think if you want to get the residents engaged in eating a healthy diet, I think you have to start with the families on why the resident, you know, maybe they can talk to their loved one on why they should choose that diet, and so um, that's been the hardest thing. And, and the other thing, you know, is that. Um, trying to get the foods that we would like to serve available across the board to to our properties. You know, we want to go local and organic and as much as we possibly can. And sometimes those foods aren't always available year-round, the local ones. Obviously, being in sure. Minnesota-based, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a tough season. So um, those have been some of the challenges that, that we faced coming in. And, and how are we going to really make a change across the board and make this happen? So... It, it, it's been a, a great growing experience, and I think our communities have really started to see the the, um, the end result of what we've been trying to do. So, mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, when you're talking about you know getting people used to different types of food, have you ever done um, you know events where there's like samplings of different stuff just to so it's kind of more of an event before you roll out the new menus at all for people? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how we introduce um, things, you know, whether it be uh, uh, some, some, you know, our, the Food for Life initiative, and I'll speak that a, a little bit, is um, is really our, the Goodman Group's look at at nutrition in senior living. It, it's, it's basically making sure that we offer plant-based nutrition for all meal periods for all residents every single day. And so, obviously, we we knew the challenges going into that, that not many of our residents grew up eating a plant-based diet. Um, mm-hmm. You did, but it's becoming more and more um, accepted now. So how do we get that, how do we get the residents to try some of these new foods or maybe things they haven't heard of? So, yes, so we've done events where we've made samples of the food and before we put them on the menu to get resident feedback. I mean, that's very important to us as resident satisfaction, obviously, plus nutrition. And so in order to get them to understand what we're trying to do, we've done a lot of events where we've, you know, offered the, uh, you know, our menu ideas or recipe ideas uh, as samples and and answered questions and done workshops. Our chefs have done uh, cooking classes open to residents and open to the communities at large, bringing in people from the outside into our communities. 
um, based on plant-based um, uh, dining options, um, different types of whole grains, uh, things that we're trying to bring in that maybe the residents haven't heard of. So they get a much better feel of, of what the new menus might be like. Now, Food for Life is not about switching our residents to become vegans or vegetarians. It's really not it. What, what okay. Food for Life making sure that we offer vegan options at every meal period. And it's up to the resident whether that's the choice that they want to make. Okay, because I was going to ask you if that was if if that was what you were trying to trying to do with that when you were talking, you know, plant-based nutrition every day, if it was going to be limited to that or if it was just part of the the option uh for Although, people. I would love to see our residents choose a plant-based diet 100% of the time, but some just aren't going to do that, and I don't want to take away from what our residents are used to eating, but what we've done is um, instead of taking away, we've added on, and then what we've taken, the food that our residents are used to eating, their old favorites, things they grew up with, is really taking a solid look at the recipe and then modifying that recipe to become a healthier version with all the flavor that they have been used to, um, and that's where a lot of food background comes in is, is cutting the fat here and tweaking this here and modifying these little things to get the same result that they're used to but really making it a much, much healthier version. And, uh, and so that's, that's the fun part of it is trying to modify and tweak and, and, and get the recipes and the menus to what the residents are used to, they know, they love, and now no matter what they choose on the menu, it's healthy for them. Mhm. Well, that's a, a great, great concept. I mean, because we can all, you know, if we can, if we can eat healthier, we can have healthier lives. And um, I mean, there's just so many different things where it uh, it will make make us more peaceful and comfortable. And um, and I know you guys do such a great job in terms of presentation of the food as well. Has has do you think presentation has helped in terms of getting people to try and sample? different things as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, people eat with their eyes first. You know, if they can't identify it, um, they won't mm-hmm. want to eat it. You know, that goes into our memory care units as well, is, is you've got to keep food that uh, it looks like it's supposed to look. It has what it has, but really keeping all of the things that, what as a chef, you know, make a great plate, such as, you know, color and texture and height and balance and uh you know, all the things that really we look at when we look at a good plate of food, a focal point. So um, those are the things that when we develop recipes and menus, we also develop plating guides. So all of our communities really have a have a clear vision of what the food should look like on a plate across the board, and uh, and so our residents can identify with that. And, that. and that's been really key for us, too. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't do any good to create great-tasting food if the resident cannot identify with it. And so... So really uh, letting them, you know, initially stimulate the appetite by putting out a good quality plate um, is really the first step. So plating okay. is Okay, and that makes, I think, just a, a ton of sense with that. Can you tell us uh, what are maybe some of the, the challenges that you've had, you know, senior living versus memory care 
Um, you know, because I, I would think with memory care units, you're going to have some additional challenges. Things are going to have to be tweaked a little bit. Um, what have you What have you found that um, is working well with memory care? Well, with memory care, you know, it's really uh, what we're trying to do is, first of all, they have to have an appetite. And so there's so many things that, that a resident faces in their day that, that could, you know, downplay their appetite. Maybe they're tired or maybe... Um, they're nauseated or maybe whatever it may be. So first thing we have to do is, is, is take whatever that, that's causing that lack of, of hunger away from them. You know, and our, our company is looking at certain things like aromatherapies and, and things like that. If we can take the nausea away, we can stimulate an appetite, and if we can stimulate the appetite, um, then we can give the food that, that they're looking, that uh, they're, they're used to eating. So it's it's been a, it's been a challenge, you know, dealing with um, trying to create quality food that they remember, um, that their caregiver can can explain easily that are is still good. Um, you know, working with finger foods with some of our memory care, um, some of those are, are are little specific challenges that we have, whether it be uh, you know uh, some type of uh, textural modification and still remain the food to look like the food, and that's why I was very excited when you talked about the grind, uh, the company called The Grind that does the pureed foods that look like what they're supposed to look like. I mean, to me, that's all about dignity and and, uh, and keeping that, that intact. We do that in our properties as well. Um, I don't care if it's uh, spaghetti or a pork chop, uh, you know, or a, a salad. We really try to remain, keep the food looking like an identifiable piece that our, some of our memory care um, patients would recognize as food instead of a pureed, you know, where it would be really hard for them, and then they lose their appetite. So, yeah, it's, it, it's been a, a it's been a challenge in the memory care, but it's been probably the most fulfilling and rewarding part of the job is when you see uh, our memory care patients their weight they, they start to have some good weight gain and and their appetites are stimulated and they remember and they look forward to the meal times. It, it's a great great experience. Yeah, and I, I, you know, you had talked about the pureed food. My mom was on that for, you know, the last four years of her life. And, I mean, I couldn't tell what it was. There was no way she could, you know. And um, even by smell, sometimes I couldn't I couldn't tell, you know, what, what exactly it was. And it was very unattractive, you know, three spoons of slop basically on a plate. And, yeah. um, it, you know, and it makes a difference. So I, I think, you know, when I was there... Um, helping feed her you know it was really about the you know conversation and the connection with me mostly talking but it was about the engagement i think even more so than the food because the food was so lacking in my opinion in terms of um you know texture and well just the whole nine yards and i and i understand you've got to be um careful as far as health risk you know i mean you don't want anybody choking and so you have to feed them appropriate what their body can handle as well. Um, but I do think that there's a lot that could be done um, oh, in terms. Yeah. I, I, and so, it's been, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Oh, oh, that's okay. I was just going to ask, what kind of um, comments have you been getting from family with this? Because you had talked about educating the families as well. Well, for the families, we've been... Uh, a lot of times we hear, oh, my gosh, that's great, finally, somebody who understands. I mean, maybe that they've got 
their loved one that have maybe in the last five or six years that have switched their diet over to a plant-based diet, um, and then they go to trying to find a place for their for their um, loved one, and, and a lot of places don't do plant-based or fresh or this or that. A lot of processed foods, you know, and so it's really nice to sit down and talk with them and say, "Look, this is what we can offer. We can offer healthy." We can offer local. We can offer organic. We can offer, and, and here is a typical meal. And of course, we always invite families in to see what what it is that we would actually be serving in, in a regular day for our residents. And so, the the you know reception from the family's been overwhelmingly positive. It's just been great. Um, we're able to accommodate many many different types of diet. And really, you know, our goal would we'd love to see some of our residents get off some of the medications. Start eating a, you know, a, a much healthier uh, diet. Choose a, pan, a plant-based uh, diet so we can, you know, improve their overall health, not just maintain it. And mm-hmm. still have the flavor and the and the great textures and the just a real quality uh, quality restaurant style of food instead of, you know, I think a lot of people's in their head is what they think of that as more of an institutional type and. And that's not what we're going for at all. That is not not our mode. So okay. it's been great, really great from the families. They've been very, very, very positive. Okay. Now we've got a question from somebody in our our audience. Uh, we let's see. They want to know how does Chef Wait ensure that any ground beef served doesn't contain pink slime? And maybe you can tell people what pink slime is first, and um, and have you looked into that? Absolutely. You know, pink slime is, that, is a food additive. Uh, basically, it's a protein substance that they use. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of fast food restaurants use it in ground meats, things like that. Uh, how do we make sure that our food doesn't contain it? We don't buy that. I mean, it, it's very, we have very strict buying standards that we have, and, and our properties, uh, you know, will grind our own burger out of our own chuck or our own sirloin. Uh, so we know that uh, and we'll 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 do our own you know 85-15 ratio of fat to meat, and we know that it doesn't contain those things. So um, we're not uh, the food for life is really about not buying anything pre-processed or pre-done. Uh, scratch cooking as much as we possibly can, um, but we we really stay away from anything processed, and that really includes even pre-formed hamburgers that are frozen or any ground beef that comes in. Everything should be ground daily uh, in our properties, and we really try to uh, work with as much local farms, vendors, uh, as we possibly can. So I can guarantee that we don't serve the ground beef with the pink slime in it. (laughs) That's actually very nasty. That's nasty. I well, wouldn't want my mom to eat that, and I would not, or or any but anybody in my family, I wouldn't want them to eat that, and I surely would not serve that to any of our residents. Yeah, she said grinding your own meat is a good way to know what you're serving. Glad to hear uh, that you're doing that. So um, I just, uh, you know, after this first hour and talking with you, I just think, oh my gosh, I, I eat so bad. <laughs> no, I just oh. do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know. Everything in moderation. It's okay to eat. It's okay to bust the rules every once in a while, you know, but you got to do everything in moderation. I think in this country we've gone off the deep end on eating very everything over-processed and just terribly unhealthy food, and then we wonder why we're unhealthy people. 
Um, yeah. It's not bad to do it every once in a while, um, and I think that that's okay. I'm mm-hmm. not a big fan of it, but, you know, but the problem is is we don't do it every once in a while. We do it daily, and we do it two or three or four times a day, and we eat that stuff, and then we wonder why we're not healthier. We wonder why our loved ones are suffering from dementia as we get a little older or the people, or there's this big increase in, in dementia, and I think a lot of it has to do with nutrition. I'm, I'm a firm believer, and our company is too, uh, the Goodman Group is a firm believer in that. There's many ailments and many things that can be um, overcome if we just uh, eat a quality, quality food, and everything can be overcome through nutrition. And I'm a firm believer in, in whole, unprocessed, scratch-cooking, organic food, not only for myself, but for our residents as well. And I mm-hmm. think I think we're on the right track. And uh, everything that we have done in our communities has led us to believe that that we're doing the right thing for our residents. And um, it's very nice to see. Well, and I think part of, you know, part of what I'm hearing too is, I mean, this, it takes a lot of education. It takes a lot of work to, and to really make it a priority you know, to make a change, but if you're moving into a community that is taking that, I mean, to me, I look at it as taking that burden on for me, <laughs> you know, and if I have to choose where I'm going to live, that would be a huge swing vote for me, a huge swing vote, and I think as the population ages and more and more people are going to be more conscious of, of uh, what it is you're providing, I think it's going to be massive um, great marketing technique as well um, because I think the boomers are getting much more in tune um, many much more than I am I mean I've got friends that are are, are you know living this um, very well and I, I just I, I honestly I can't say I've incorporated it near to where I should um, but I'm becoming more aware and I'm trying to shift but um, I, I'm, I know personally I'm using probably the excuse of time, um, you know, to make some of the changes, right, wrong, or indifferent. That's that's where I'm at. And so I, I can just see this as a huge, huge benefit um, if I was choosing a place to live, um, to know that you're going to that depth um, to protect me and make me healthy. And um, I, I just, I, I think that's, a massive, massive, um, huge step that the Goodman Group has taken. And um, I, I think it's wonderful um, that they're going that route because, you know, I I know a, a lot of communities um, have not and probably never will take that step just due to the, the cost factor and the training. And, you know, I mean, you're talking changing menus and routines and attitudes towards delivery systems. That's a That's a big shift. It's a big oh, yeah. shift. Yeah, and, and um, I agree. It, it's um, you know, yeah. Let's just talk about that for a little bit. Let's talk about the you know, the monumental task that it is to be able to do this. Um, does eating healthy cost more money? I mean, that that's a that's an. Ex- I hear people say that a lot, and in some mm-hmm. ways, yes, it does. I mean, yes, it does. Let's 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 get down to it. Yeah, it costs me more to cook a meal at home than it is to run across the street to a McDonald's right over there, and and grab a burger, yeah, it cost me a little bit more. Um, but my life is worth a little bit more, I think. And so, um, so yeah, it, it does cost a little bit more in our communities for what we offer. Um, but 
what what the payoff is is maybe let me say this the food doesn't cost any more it doesn't cost any more to buy processed food than it does to buy local or organic food for us across the board mm-hmm. in in a, in our situation okay mm-hmm. so what we're really talking about is the time and labor it takes to prepare a, a quality meal yeah it does cost more to and, and take more time to cook from scratch um but we are committed to doing that. Uh, we're committed to training our staff. We're committed to writing recipes. We're committed to not buying things that are pre-done and pre-processed. And, and we're not going to do that. It's, it's not the direction we want to go. It's not the, the direction that's in the best interest of our resident or our resident's families. And so, um, so yeah, it's, it, was, it took a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to kid you and say it was an easy transition because it wasn't. Um, but we are definitely full-fledged, both feet in the swimming pool, into the deep end, committed to it, and um, and the results have been miraculous since. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm glad we're, we're doing it. Um, but I can see, definitely see why people don't do it at home. So you're right. We try to take that burden off of our residents, and you know what? Choose us because we will do that for you. We will provide you not only with a plant-based option if that's what you want, but also for anything else that you might want to order or eat at 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 your at our properties is also healthy for you, not just our vegan option of the day or our our vegan option of the meal, you know, whatever we're offering that day because it changes three meals a day, changes every day. But everything that you could possibly come from our kitchen is good for you. And so, yeah, we hope that, that that's the what people will will see and, and make the big difference. If we look at the focus of food in a resident's life, I mean, everything revolves around food. I mean, life enrichment mm-hmm. activities revolve around food. Social activities revolve around food. Their, uh, you know, their health, their well-being, their their mental state. Everything is revolved around around food. And so, food needs to be a focus, and I mean a huge focus. Um, not just a secondary thought, which we did for a lot of years, I think, in, in senior living as food was, was an afterthought. Now it needs to be one of the determining factors on why someone chooses a particular community because it is so very important uh, to the residents. It needs to be first and foremost, a huge focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. And I think, you know, the, the time and um, things to prepare yeah, – you know, people do use it as an excuse, but again, if you're moving into a community, what a great choice um, to be able to make and, and have available um, where it's not work for you anymore. You just you just get to pick and choose. I don't know if you know the answer to this question or not, but I'm going to throw it out there. Um, I, you know, in a lot of um, senior communities, they have uh, little stores where people can pick up milk and you know little odds and ends product. Is that something that um, that you have worked with in terms of? And I know it's kind of out of the scope of the kitchen, but in terms of what products they choose to stock um, to tie into kind of your your healthy living um, concept. And um, you know, or are they just ordering kind of the normal stuff everybody everybody um, has? I'm just curious on that one. And you, you know, might that's a great question. You know, I, I do see. You know, some of our properties, our communities do have 
uh, little little grocery stores for the people that might have a little kitchen or a little kitchenette or something like that. Not all of our properties do. A lot of them um, really are just everything comes from the kitchen. Um, but you know what? I'm going to be real honest and say I have not taken a hard look at that, and that is one area I should really look at. And I think um, I think it's important that if we're going to follow through with our message, that uh, you know it's a fine line. It's a really a big fine line between making sure that the residents get what they want versus get what is healthy for them. And sometimes they're not always the same thing. Um, yep. And it, sometimes it's a, it's a hard pick. We, we want to make sure the residents feel empowered, that we're not taking anything away. Um, yep. But, yeah, boy, that's a great thing is I should really look at that. I, you know, I've spent so much time in the kitchens and working on our programs that I have not looked at our little, our, you know, sometimes we do sell little dry goods here and there out in the communities and, well, I really should take a hard look at what we're doing there. Thank you yeah, for bringing that I, up. Appreciate that. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, because a lot of times, you know, I, like when I, when I'll, I'll find a new healthy choice, and it's like, gosh, I would like this more available to me, you know. And so I was just thinking it would be a nice way to tie in. And again, I, I totally respect that you, you know, you can't take everything away. So it's not like you're going to go no, no chocolate, you know, no. <laughs> you know, nothing anymore, um, you know, making those decisions because I think there has to be a balance. But I think if you have those that opportunity to make sure that what they're stocking, maybe it is more organic, uh, you know, if that's the theme, um, yeah. you know, in the community, that would just be a nice tie-in. Or, you know, if it's uh, adding, you know, almonds or if it's adding, you know, some dried fruit, you know, as an option, you know, for treats that might make a lot of sense. Um, well, a lot, in a lot of our communities, we have, um, you know, it, it, things are available to our, our residents, like from, we have what's called anytime dining in our community, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is dining options available from, from 7 in the morning till 7 at night. And, um, and so when we have that, you know, if a resident really just wants a little, you know, obviously besides the, the you know, um, the scheduled snacks and things like that, you know, they can come down to the dining room and, and enjoy at any time, you know, something, you know, a handful of, of this or, or some dried nuts or fruit or granola or a smoothie or, you know, anything that we do there. They can come down and enjoy that at any time. So, yeah, but I really need should take a look at our stuff that we have available to our residents that are kind of outside the the realm of the kitchen area. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can I ask how long have you been doing this Food for Life program with Goodman? Yeah, we developed Food for Life uh, in in 2013 in conjunction with Brenda Davis. I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. Uh, I am not. Okay. She's a dietitian out of Canada, international speaker. She came down and worked with me and a couple of our other team members on developing really what we wanted our food program to look like. Um, we have 14, you know, culinary goals that we have in there, but really our food for life is, is very structured around offering plant-based nutrition, doing away with processed foods completely. As a matter of fact, when we build kitchens now, we've actually removed deep fryers, and we don't even have those options in our kitchens anymore. Um, we're just doing away with some of those things that, um, and finding alternative ways to get the residents what they want and they're used to, but making it much healthier for them. So 
Um, we started it in 2013, early 2013, and we've rolled it out in, in our communities um, across the country and been implementing it ever since. It's been a, a, a very long transition. Um, some of it's gone faster. If the residents are more receptive to it, it's gone very quickly. If they're not receptive to it, we then we feel we need to do a lot more education with the residents. Um, and so we've taken our time and, and done a lot of education with resident and resident families. So, um, so yeah, it's it's gone in some ways very fast. In some ways, you know, I'm kind of an impatient guy anyhow. So uh, it's, it's maybe it's not gone as fast as I would have liked it to go for our residents. So, but it's gone very well. Okay, well, it's one of those things where, you know, it never, I mean, when you're passionate about something, it never moves as fast as you'd like to, that right. like to see it. And, um, you know, that's just kind of part of the process. When it comes to educating them, can you tell us, you know, are you doing, like, seminars or are you doing events or how how are you, what's your process to educate both both residents and families? Is it one-on-one? Is it yeah, that's a great question. You know, we've done a lot of different things. First of all, it starts with me educating our chefs, okay? So once we're all singing on the same page, then it's educating our, our faculty. And it might be, I mean, not our faculty, but our cooks, our line cooks. And it might be working with, um, uh, coming in for me to do cooking demos or giving them information or doing seminars or in-service or whatever. But once we get the message and we're ready to roll out into the communities, um, we've done one-on-one -on -one cooking classes with We've done um, very small, intimate lunches, like we'll invite six residents for this vegan lunch, and, and every week we invite six different residents or a dozen people. Uh, we've done cooking classes um, open to the public and some not open to the public that are only open to residents. We've, done, um, we've put together workshops with uh, resident families. Um, we've done one-on-one -on -one with residents' families and, and residents themselves. Um, so we've done just about everything we could do, and it's an ongoing thing. It's constantly going in. Um, everything that we can do to try to get the word out on what Food for Life is, why residents should choose a plant-based diet, and if they choose not to do that, here are some of the things that we're doing to keep you healthy by modifying some of your favorite recipes, and, th and this is what we do. Some of our seminars really just have to do with, um, you know, what is fair, you know, residents are like, what's quinoa, what's farro, what's this, what's that? And so we will make samples and we will, you know, introduce them to new ingredients and what's tofu and what do we do with that and what does it taste like and, you know, I don't want to eat it if I don't know what it is. Well, let's do a, let's do a seminar. Let's do a, you know, a one-hour cooking, you know, class on how to work with tofu or, or this is what all the things you can do with, you know, uh, tahini or whatever. I mean, whatever we want to do, um, but we're really trying everything we can do to get the message across. And, I, and, and our chefs are great. Let me tell you, those guys and girls in the properties are just fantastic um, with connecting with the residents. Um, you know, that's our big thing. We spend a lot of, a lot of time in the dining room one-on-one uh, -on -one with residents, walking to tables, making sure they're, they're satisfied with the food program they're they like what we're doing. Um, all of our communities have resident food councils that residents have a say in what happens in the dining room and what goes on the menu. And, and uh, our chefs sit down and we, we meet on a monthly basis on things we like, things we don't like, things they want to see. And so, you know, it's very important to get 
resident feedback and family feedback in what's happening in, in the dining rooms. So it's been great. We've tried everything we can do to get the, the word out and do education. Education is key for us because without the educational component, they don't understand why they should choose that that way of, of eating. So. Sure. Well, that, that makes total sense. And it sounds like you've got a nice variety and a fun, engaging way of letting people um, taste things and get educated and um, and, and learn um, in a in a social environment, which I think is I think is really important. I think it's one of the one of the keys um, in terms of, especially in terms of memory care and and just healthy aging. I think we need to stay engaged and and always learn. Um, can you give us any specifics in terms of? Oh, how food, meaning, um, and, and maybe uh, specific types of food can really help those with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia and, and why you think that? Yeah, you know, there's a, I think there's a, a direct link to food, nutrition, and Alzheimer's. And what I mean by that is, is I think the, the best diet, the best food to be on, and it is exactly what we're doing for Food for Life. Um, mm-hmm. Process. Anytime you bring those chemicals, anytime you bring those those things into your body, um, it's not good. You know, let's just face it. I mean, there's been a lot of research done on, on really what, what eating a healthy diet overall, and, and it goes across the board, and, you know, specifically with dementia patients, it, it boils down to eating as much as a um, unprocessed and un, un you know a, um, a healthy organic uh, free from additive diet as you possibly can. I mean that's and that's really what it is. When we talk about specific food, I'm talking about across the board. That's what you can do. You wanna you wanna feel better? Cut out the junk. Don't eat processed food. It's really simple. I mean it's you know we all this money and all this time goes into nutrition research and and nutrition education when it really boils down to it all we've got to do is cut out the junk and and don't don't welcome that into our bodies take away the mm-hmm. process and, and you're going to be much healthier across the board and um i think there's a lot of research left to be done on exactly when we nail it down to what additives and what processes we do do the most damage. Uh, I think we all know that processed food across the board is not good at all. Um, but if we can get back to, and, and it's a cultural shift. I'm talking a huge cultural shift, and I, and I think you're starting to see it, where people are spending more time in the kitchens, uh, more time cooking their actual food instead of running out to get it. And I hope we continue to see that that cultural switch. I don't know where the focus for the family ever came out of the kitchen and went one day into in front of the computer or in front of the TV, but if we could bring that focus back into the kitchen, um, I think we'd all be better off for it. I I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Um, it would be interesting, um, and I, I don't know if you've thought about expanding, you know, this concept, Food for Life, outside of, uh, of the Goodman Group, I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure it's proprietary there, but I'm just thinking in terms of, um, as an addition, I guess, too, maybe it would be a better way to put it, but to um, do some educational things to the public, 
to let them know. I, I could see that being a really great marketing tool as well and um, to get people uh, you know, on alert to the importance of what it is you're providing and why you're providing it. And I don't know if you've given any thought to that or, and again, you don't have to answer that, but um, I could just see that as being a, a great, great marketing tool for people because there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, seminars and educational stuff done, but I don't think there's that much, anyways, I don't see that much done in terms of food and the importance of it and, you know, how it can impact people from health to moods to, I mean, uh, the list is endless, you know, um, and even if you're looking at cost factors um, for individuals cooking at home, you know, if you can kind of prep them to um, eat healthy prior to even needing that, I think that just, again, ups your odds as a company um, to be able to kind of birth that and grow that even even more. So, I don't know, just a, just a thought on that one. Well, I but, think so. we are there. I mean, and that's, you know, honestly, we're also, we're working on um, menus, you know. There's a lot of companies out there to develop menus for, like, uh, skilled living, okay? Mm-hmm. Um not healthy. I can tell you right now, not many of them are healthy. And we got to the point where we were so very frustrated with what was out there that we are developing all of our own in-house menus, all based on our Food for Life program. And I will tell you this, we are looking at making them available as another option on the market for other uh, communities that do skilled living outside of the Goodman Group for them to adopt mm-hmm. our menus for their residents. So, yes. We have looked at it. You know, we've done a lot of – I've done some seminars before. Um, I, did, I just did recently um, spoke at the American Culinary Federation um, conferences about chefs making the transition from the restaurant industry into healthcare and why it's such an important part of, of the growing um, hospitality scene and why, why it's important that chefs make this transition um, because I think this – industry will only ever be as strong as the people that are pushing it, and I think we have a lot of people driving a farm-to-table movement or a community-supported agriculture movement or a slow food movement or, um, you know, a lot of that, but we need more chefs driving healthy food for our seniors, and I think um, that's an important key factor in making this all work is bringing in the personnel with the food knowledge um, that are able to to do that, and so yeah, I I think it's it's huge. I've I've spoken to many groups uh, and many chefs on making this transition into healthcare and senior living, and um, I'm very passionate about it. And I think it's uh, I think it's really good for our company that that we continue to bring chefs from the industry into healthcare. So yeah, I'm all for our marketing and. You know, we we tie in with our chef showcase. We do, actually we just recently did a a benefit down in uh, Largo, Florida, for the Caregiver Support Network, um, really showcasing all the talents of our of our Goodman Group chefs um, doing food for life um, cuisine in a in a fundraising event. So yeah, we market as much as we possibly can, but I definitely think that um, because there is so little out there for people or um, facilities that don't develop their own menus, that this will be a, a breath of fresh air option for them to be able to do 
and bring in and still remain within and I, I get it. I, I see the budgetary cost that and guidelines that are a lot of a lot of properties are under, but it doesn't mean um, you can't do quality food. It costs no more to buy good quality food than it does to buy processed food and I can tell you that for a fact. Mm-hmm. Well, wonderful. Well, this has just been an, a fascinating um, discussion, Chef White. I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. We only have about five minutes left. Is there anything else that you specifically want to make sure that we cover? Well, yeah. You know, if um, can I can I get yeah. you know if anybody has any specific questions about you know I know there's a lot of there's a lot of talk out there and there's a lot of people giving advice and things like that. But if anybody wants to know anything specific about food for life. And what we're doing at the Goodman Group, they can just email me at foodforlife at thegoodmangroup.com, and I'll be more than happy to uh, to answer any questions about our properties, what we're doing, how we're doing it, um, and anything that any anybody might have. I'd, I'd love to help any way that I can. So, great, great. Well, I'm I'm just like I said, I'm I'm thrilled to hear all that you're doing. Um, you know, so much needs to change in the industry as a whole, and you guys are are really making a nice dent in things. And it's very, very fun to see the changes occur and um, and to hear about the great work that you're doing. It's it's absolutely fantastic. So, I thank I thank you and the Goodman Group for seeing the need and um, stepping up to the plate and uh, taking it on. Um, you know, it's never easy to to um, institute change, but when there's a passion to really make a difference, um, I think it can be so much fun, um, even though there's the trials and tribulations to get you from point A to point C. Uh, you know it's well worth it, and when you've got a good, strong team and management behind you, um, it's just it, it's it's so it's it's such a valuable cause and effort. So, again, I thank you, and I think it's exciting that you're considering bringing this to other communities that might not be able to afford to start from scratch um, this whole process. And so that's that's really cool too. Very, very cool. So, again, uh, for our audience, you can go to foodforlifeatthegoodmangroup.com or, you know, just check out thegoodmangroup.com. And actually, it is the, um, T-H-E, goodmangroup.com. Uh, so sometimes people think the isn't really part of the URL. So I just want to make sure that that is that that is clear with everyone. Well, thank you again, Rob, um, for being uh being part of the show today you you did a great job i can hear the excitement in your voice and and the passion behind what it is you're doing and um kudos kudos to you all well thank you very much thanks for having us and uh you know um just keep spreading the word out there about what we can do to bring better nutrition into people's lives so thank you very much we appreciate it okay have a great week bye now all right thank you bye-bye So again, for those of you that um, are looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, you can go to the ADI or Alzheimer's Disease International and uh, you will be able to find the closest association to you. They are actually going to be rolling out here shortly a, uh, a new research paper that was really done on prevention and food is going to have a lot to do with that. So Stay posted. I'll be having Mark Wartman, the Executive Director of Alzheimer's Disease, 
uh, International on with us in this next month. Um, again, welcome to Healthstar Home Care, who's just doing amazing work out there as one of our new partners. If you're not part of the Purple Angel uh project, I highly recommend that you become active. It doesn't take much to get involved, and you too can spread awareness. Uh, if you're an individual, if you're a company, if you're a community, it doesn't make any difference. Um, it's the new global symbol for dementia. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com, and then go to our About page, and there's a whole tab on the purple angel and how you can how you can get that and how it can be used uh if you're if you're dealing with the Lewy body or frontal temporal lobe, make sure that you check out those national associations as well because they can definitely help you with those specific symptoms as well as the National Aphasia Association, which can help. Uh, in terms of speech, they've got all kinds of different ideas. From a social side, check out Coro Health. That's C-O-R-O Health with Music First. Uh, they make prescriptions for music, as well as Puzzle With Me and Jiminy Wicket. Uh, this has been Lori LeBay with Alzheimer's Speaks. Look forward to talking with you next week when we're going to have the grind on, once again, talking about food. But this is going to be a pretty fascinating and cutting-edge uh, topic that we're going to be talking about, and we'll be doing some open mic that day as well. So look forward to talking to you all. Have a fantastic week. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.